0: Our next lifestyle medicine area to discuss is a big one, particularly given its relationship to all the other areas, and that's stress. Stress contributes to poor dietary habits, lack of exercise, poor sleep, disrupted relationships, and substance use. So all of those pillars of lifestyle medicine. Now, conversely, these same behaviors can be part of an overall approach to stress management, along with some other very specific approaches that we'll talk about both this week and over the course of the next few weeks. Now, for this module specifically, by the end, I'd like you to be able to make a connection between stress and health, to recognize inappropriate methods for coping with stress, identify factors that contribute to stress and discuss not only the fight or flight response, but also some of the other theories related to stress. Now, statistically speaking, as I mentioned, this is huge. In fact, 43% of all adults suffer from adverse effects of stress. Between 75% and 90% of all doctors visits are stress related or symptoms of stress. Stress can play a part in headaches, high blood pressure, heart problems, diabetes and skin conditions, asthma, arthritis and mental health concerns like depression and anxiety. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration declared stress a hazard of the workplace. In fact, it can cost American industry quite a lot of money, not only in relation to the healthcare cost of workers from work-related incidents, but direct costs from inefficiency or work-related injury that is related to stress. Now, while stress can be an issue at any life stage, it can be particularly impactful for working adults, and it can contribute to productivity and burnout so it is something to be aware of particularly as you move in to the workplace the main causes of stress based on the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health most of it has to do with a perception of an excessive workload almost 50% of those causes of stress seem to be related to workload Another pretty large component is what they've called people issues, so relationships, something that we'll talk about in a future module. Juggling work and personal lives, so that work-life balance, which can be very difficult, and in a very small percentage, a lack of job security. So we use this word a lot. What does it really mean? What is stress? Now, stress was a concept originally described in the human experience by Hans Sellier in 1936. He's a researcher and clinician who described it specifically in the human experience as a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. And while we tend to describe stress as a negative thing, he actually discussed two kinds of stress. Eustress versus distress. Eustress is kind of good. it's usually provides positive benefits. Creativity, increased performance, increased efficiency. However, in the public, we tend to equate the word stress with bad stress or distress. And It is the kind of stress that is draining and harmful and can lead to poor lifestyle behaviors and symptoms related to progression or start of chronic disease. Now, the key to becoming more resilient in the face of stress is to consider our reaction to it. So this is kind of an interesting way to go about this. If you compare Hans Selye's definition to the definition of stress in engineering terms, that is actually described as an applied force or system of forces that can deform a body or object. And then there is an internal distribution of forces within that body that try to balance and react to the loads that have been applied to it. But you'll notice here that this is talking about the force itself. The actual response of that system or object to the applied stress or stressor is actually what we would perceive in the human condition as stress. So it's it's not so much about the stress, it's about our reaction to it. And that's what Cellier actually clarified later. He said, it's not stress that kills us, it's our reaction to it. And so that is what we'll talk about here going forward. After we introduce what exactly stress is and how it contributes to what we experience, we'll discuss how we can alter our reaction to it, because developing that resiliency is what can really make a big difference. In fact, Hans Selye, who was not a native English speaker, was reported to have said that if he knew English better at the time, instead of being the father of stress, he would have been described as the father of strain. Because as he said, it's not the stress or the stressor It's our reaction to it. And you can see this in observations of how different people handle stress. You could have what objectively is a similar stressor, but depending on how someone reacts to it, they could have a very different outcome in a given situation. Now, since Cellier's time, the study of the effects of stress have increased dramatically because it, we've recognized its contribution to health and disease. So after we take a look at some of these effects, or before taking a look at the physiological response that leads to disease, let's talk a little bit about the theoretical roots of stress and resilience. Because as you'll see here, some of these the- theoretical pictures of stress can also lead us to better understand our approach to it and how we might be able to increase resiliency to stress. So we'll start by talking about Cellier's original um, conceptual picture of stress in the general adaptation syndrome. We'll talk about the Yerkes-Dodson Law, which hopefully will make sense to you, particularly those of you who are athletes, and how that is related to the theory of flow or kind of getting in the zone or the groove. And then the fight or flight response theory, which is the biggest thing that informs our understanding of the physiological ramifications of how disease is related to stress. So let's start with the general adaptation syndrome. Now, in this understanding that Selye developed of stress and our response to it, he indicated that the first phase is that um, alarm stage, and this is when initially you have a decreased resistance to that stressor, but once you mobilize resources to handle the stressor, you begin to develop a higher resistance to it, but As you enter that stage of coping with the stressor, or phase two with resistance, you begin to adjust as the body adapts to the stress that you're undergoing. However, there's an upper limit to that. At some point, the body can only adapt or resist for a certain period of time before exhaustion sets in. And so once your reserves are depleted, This is what helps explain the physiological response that the body has and what can lead to disease as it relates to stress. Because at this point, your reserves have been depleted. Your resistance becomes much lower. And we see those maladaptive responses from the other body systems. Now, another way to look at this resistance that your body exhibits in response to stress, we can look at the term resilience. So again, from an engineering or physics perspective, resilience is the capability of withstanding a shock or stressor without permanent deformation or rupture. Now that's if we're talking about an inanimate object. But if we're talking about us, it would be our tendency to recover from or adjust or cope with stressors, misfortune, change, um, things that come up in our lives. And so this resilience and coping are skills and strategies that can be learned and they can help a person to bounce back ideally before they get to that third phase in the general adaptation syndrome because we want to try to avoid the depletion of reserves and the exhaustion because that is when you're going to see the most physiologically strong reaction and potential maladaptive responses that can lead to disease. So if we... Consider that Sellier did describe both good stress and bad stress. We can see that researchers have taken that a bit farther as well, even though in the public perception we tend to look at stress as a negative thing. Now, Yerkes and Dodson, two researchers, came up with this idea that, you know, as Sellier described, not all stress is bad. In fact, there is a, a relationship that follows a very specific um, picture or response as it relates to performance. So if you take a look at this graph, it follows a parabolic curve that's pretty predictable, which shows that as the stress increases, or as they called it, the arousal, as that, that If stressor arouses the body, you will get an increase in performance, but only to a certain point at which the stressor becomes too much and performance will eventually go down. So this is where stress can be good because your performance can increase. And then, as that stressor becomes overwhelming, that's when you get a decrease in performance. So, again, as an athlete, this might make sense to you because the increased challenge in a situation and stressor may actually encourage you to rise to meet the occasion. Yet, when that stressor or challenge is overwhelming and you're not able to meet the challenge, your performance decreases. Now, with this basic relationship in mind, we can jump into the concept of flow, which again you may be able to relate to. So, um, a researcher um, named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi described use stress with the term flow. And you might be able to understand that terminology more as the idea of being in the zone or being in the groove, which I think we've all experienced at one point or another. The concept of flow is described by this psychologist and researcher as a highly focused mental state in which you are fully absorbed in that task. And during that time, you are releasing some of those same hormones we've talked about previously that tend to give you good feelings, in fact, feelings of joy and accomplishment when dopamine and endorphins are released. Now, what Csikszentmihalyi did was he studied a bunch of famous artists, scientists, inventors, and analyzed how this positive stress led to a state of flow. What was it that happened? during that time when they were most creative, most inventive, what led them to this point and what were the circumstances they could describe around that time at which they were most productive in experiencing positive stress. Now what he then further described was that that doesn't always have a, um, a constant Expectation as it relates to the creativity and increased performance, that much like with the Yerkes-Dodson Law, there are times when there is a mismatch in the skill and challenge or stressor. So what he described was that there is a specific flow channel where your skill level adequately meets the challenge that is presented to you. So let's say, though, that you have a very high skill level but the challenge is very low. In those cases, you're likely to experience boredom. Whereas if you have a low skill level and the challenge or stressor is very high and you're unable to meet that challenge with your current skill level, you're going to experience the negative stressor, the anxiety. So that experience will be negative as opposed to when your skill level Is in this channel where it is relatively close to the level of challenge. In this time, you experience good stress, you stress, which he coined. As flow, and during this time, people lose track of time. They sometimes don't eat. They feel this sense of joy. They they almost lose track of conscious thinking and reasoning outside of their individual task that they are focused on at the moment. And when they look back at it, they realize that that was a very productive period of time. Now, what? It's helpful about understanding the concept of flow is that you can alter these to better meet the situation, and that's something you could coach or encourage with a patient or client or in yourself if you're experiencing and wanting to manipulate the situation to avoid negative stress. For example, let's say that you are in this situation where the challenge is pretty high, and right now you're experiencing negative stress you have two options for example you could try to increase your skill level so that you're more likely to end up up here somewhere in that flow channel or you could negotiate if possible a decrease in the level of challenge to meet your skill level. Let's say your skill level is here. You could negotiate so that perhaps the challenge level is a little lower, or if you have the capability, if that's within your control, you decrease your own expectations, if this is something you've set out for yourself in terms of the challenge level. And then that may allow you to get into the zone, you know, that flow channel. So this is a concept that can be very helpful um, in analyzing ways that you can approach a stressor to try to change the situation a little bit. So, both the Yerkes-Dodson law and the the concept of flow or flow theory acknowledges this good side of stress. Beside that in, you know, public perception we don't always acknowledge. And what we can do then in a coaching situation and in healthcare is help patients and clients to embrace the possibility of a good stressor. We can help motivate individuals with a stressor to increase performance, to acquire skills that will allow them to better address that stressor. It can even be something that you can encourage that would increase efficiency in a situation or creativity. And when we consider the physiological purpose of stress, we also see that stress has life-saving implications. And that's because in the case where we need to respond to something quickly in dangerous situations or emergencies, that sympathetic nervous system or SNS action is critical to promoting survival in the face of a threat, which brings us to the fight or flight response, which is probably something you've all heard of before and had a little bit of exposure to. And this is regulated by the HPA axis, which is an abbreviation for the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And this is a series of adrenal or I'm, I'm sorry, of endocrine glands starting in the brain that produce various hormones in a series that affect each other, ultimately ending in the release of some very important hormones and neurotransmitters. So it starts with the hypothalamus in the brain, which releases corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, right up here. That affects the nearby pituitary gland. And the corticotropin-releasing hormone prompts the release of adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, which goes down to the kidneys. So rather than up in the brain, this is also in the brain, we're going down to the kidneys to this little gland on top of each of your kidneys called the adrenal gland. And in that location, ACTH prompts the release of cortisol and catecholamines, which you may know better as adrenaline and noradrenaline or epinephrine or norepinephrine. These are your catecholamines. And these are very important substances because they are going to allow us to have the capability to react to those dangerous situations, that fight-or-flight response that is necessary for survival. This cortisol hormone is sometimes called the stress hormone because as we'll talk about here in just a second, it causes the production And several processes that end up leading to disease if you are having a chronic production of them. So what happens here is cortisol and those catecholamines lead to an increase in your respiratory rate, an increase in your heart rate and blood pressure, increases the generation of blood sugar, Um, you not only get glucose being produced by the liver, but you're getting it prompted to be released from storage, and you are diverting blood from internal organs and um, processes that aren't necessary for fight or flight, like digestion and you're getting that blood diverted out to what you might need to run away, for example, skeletal muscle. So this is what produces that fight or flight response. Now, as a result of some of that, there are some other things that are happening as those energy reserves and blood are being diverted to very specific locations. You get a decrease of blood to the other internal organs. The immune system is repressed as a result of this. You're also getting a decreased production of sex hormones, because at that point, survival is more important than reproduction. That's sort of a luxury. You're going to get changes in those those blood sugar levels. The blood begins to sweat to make sure that you're regulating, or not blood, the skin begins to sweat so that you're regulating temperature. And you're consuming more oxygen. Your breathing becomes faster and shallower. So all these changes that are part of this autonomic or automatic system that is made up of the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the SNS or sympathetic side that produces this fight or flight response. The side that balances it out when the threat has passed is the parasympathetic. And it has, as you can see here, kind of the opposite effect on each of these things that occurs. Now, the issue then becomes, while there is a purpose to all of these things that occur as a result of the SNS response for getting away from some sort of threat... Your body does not distinguish between a real physical stressor or a non-threatening mental, social, or emotional stressor. Your brain does not know the difference. So over time, if you are getting an excess production of those stress hormones, then you're going to get a chronic stimulation of the fight-or-flight system, which can have deleterious uh, adverse effects on various body systems. So for example, cortisol over time is associated with an impaired cognitive performance. It dampens the perform- or the function of the thyroid gland. You end up with an elevated blood sugar over time, which can contribute to insulin resistance and increase risk for diabetes. You get a decrease in bone density, a decreased muscle mass. Elevation in blood pressure, lowered immune function, slower wound healing, sleep disruptions, an increase in abdominal fat, which we've talked about before, has a stronger correlation to certain diseases. And we know that an abdominal fat or apple shaped body type has a greater risk for heart disease and other chronic diseases. So, heart attacks and strokes are more likely as a result of chronic increased cortisol. And you also get long-term changes to some of your blood lipids, which we know are associated with heart attack and stroke, because the bad cholesterol can increase over time with elevated cortisol. And the good cholesterol, HDL, it can get lower over time. So you can see that all of these can lead to many health problems. Let's look a little bit more at what it does to the brain. Research shows that cortisol levels during aging, so over the lifetime, can predict atrophy of the hippocampus in the brain, one of those areas where you consolidate memory. So long term, as you get atrophy of the hippocampus, you could end up with memory deficits later in life because research has shown that increased glucocorticoids, and that's what cortisol is, is a glucocorticoid, that leads to not only hippocampal dysfunction, but this is crazy, almost 15% reduction in size of the hippocampus. In other words, this could be part of the contributor to increased risks of dementia and other neurological disease later in life. Now, much of our stress, as I mentioned, is no longer physical threats that lead to the fight-or-flight response. A great deal of our current stressors, particularly in developed parts of the world, like the United States, are psychological stressors. Now, psychological stress is when there's just a perception that the environmental demands tax or exceed your ability to adapt, adjust, or cope to that stressor. And so some researchers... Um, several years ago, were able to do a review of the effects of stress on multiple different disease states, and they concluded that stress contributes to depression, cardiovascular disease, and the progression of HIV to AIDS through the mechanism of a decreased immune response that can happen with chronic cortisol in the body. So they suggested two different pathways for how stress leads to disease. One of those pathways should make a whole lot of sense to you because it's essentially what we're talking about in lifestyle medicine. That as a result of stress, you end up getting poor sleep, and we recently talked about the effects of poor sleep on the body. You don't exercise as much, which we all know is a risk factor for things like diabetes and heart disease. You have poor eating habits, which can lead to weight gain, You smoke more, obvious risks with that, and you don't tend to follow medical treatments as much when you are under stress. And so the behavioral pathway is one thing that can contribute to future disease or disease progression. The second pathway is sort of the sneaky one. This is the one that's happening inside of us that is less visible and is something that is not behavioral, it is purely hormonal. This is the endocrine pathway that connects stress and disease. And it's kind of what we just talked about with the fight or flight response. As a result of our stress reaction and our inability to distinguish it from a true physical stressor, you're going to get a release of hormones that influence all those organ systems that I just mentioned, in addition to the immune system. Now, in addition to that, there is a close association with stress and mental health conditions particularly depression and that is because there have been close ties between social stressors, such as when people go through a divorce, the death of a loved one, diagnosis of an illness, where they've been able to take that incident and looked at what happened as a result of that incident. And they found that increased stress and the increased cortisol can affect the production of some of the positive neurotransmitters and hormones, such as serotonin and dopamine. And we know that inadequate serotonin at those nerve gaps is part of the physiological production of symptoms in depression. And we know that dopamine is also part of this, in addition to related to Parkinson's disease. And so... With an increase in cortisol, you can get a decrease in serotonin and dopamine, which we know are related to depression. So again, you see these connections between stress and disease, mounting and mounting. So as we look at the immune system, which is not only related to our ability to fight off disease and illness, it is also related to inflammation, which more recently has been found to be an underlying process in almost every major chronic disease out there. So suppression of immunity through the stress hormones happens because cortisol has a direct effect on certain immune cells, particularly those ones that are responsible for phagocytosis. And that's where you get certain cells whose job it is to take in and process antigens that you are exposed to. And so as cortisol reduces that ability, you're going to get changes in the chemicals that are normally released to communicate between immune cells that run both inflammation and your immune response. So these chemicals called interferons, interleukins, and lymphokines, which you don't need to know those names, but that's just what they are. If you've taken patho or the immunity class, then you'll recognize those. But you're going to get changes in these cytokines, and you're going to get off balance in the pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory cytokines that are released in the immune system under normal conditions. And so if you get an imbalance of those more toward a pro-inflammatory picture, then you can begin to get a shift from acute normal inflammatory reactions to more chronic inflammatory reactions that continue even when the injury, illness, or antigen is gone. And so inflammatory responses in any system can contribute to disease states. It's one of the the underlying parts of the pathophysiology of heart disease. It's an underlying part of the pathophysiology of arthritis and a bunch of other chronic diseases. So you can see here that many of the physiological connections between our stress hormones and other systems are very strong. These connections make sense as we start to look at how stress contributes to disease. So let's look a little bit closer at the impact of stress on those individual body systems. So in terms of the circulatory system, as I mentioned, inflammation that can be affected by a stress response is going to have direct changes to the lining of your arteries. And when that happens in the coronary arteries, you end up with plaques forming that lead to blockages, which ultimately is what along with cholesterol levels and and, an imbalance in your healthy lipids is what is going to potentially lead to that blockage and a heart attack. Now, if those blockages develop in vessels in the brain, that's when you end up with a stroke. But you can also have changes to blood vessels in the periphery, which is when you get PVD or peripheral vascular disease. So that inflammatory response in the circulatory system can be altered with stress. It also changes the breathing rate. So when somebody with asthma or COPD, a stressor is going to make it even more difficult to breathe. Now, what impact does stress have on the digestive system? I mentioned earlier that as a response, of the fight-or-flight reaction, you are getting a diversion of blood away from internal organs and a decrease in digestion. Now, That is a possible contributor to some changes in the digestive system, but you are also going to get some things that happen specifically within each component of the digestive system. For example, the esophagus is more likely to spasm as a result of stress, which can lead to what many people would describe as heartburn related to stress. In addition to that, you get an increase in stomach acidity as a result of stress, which can again lead to heartburn and indigestion, and in some cases is a contributor to what is described as a stress ulcer. Now, in those who already have an existing inflammatory condition, like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease that can make each of those symptoms worse. Now what about the endocrine system? Now that is where a lot of these stress hormones are coming from so we kind of already know what happens here as you release cortisol in a stress response if that becomes excess or chronic over time you could have a chronic increase in blood pressure which along with the inflammation in the vessels of the heart or brain could cause or lead to the development of heart disease or stroke risk, an increase in blood sugar as a direct response of gluconeogenesis in the liver, and in that case, you may end up with an increase in insulin resistance as it is related to pre-diabetes and bi- diabetes, and you're more likely to begin to break down protein, which if muscle mass is an issue, you may already have that concern that you are losing muscle mass as a result of this. Now, we mentioned the immune system, so not only do you have the suppression of cortisol in the immune system, some of those changes in cytokines are also going to influence other lifestyle areas because of cytokines related to immune cells, for example, insomnia. And as that has an impact on immunity as well, you get a vicious cycle as there have been Validated studies indicating that when people get less than about five hours of sleep, there is a demonstrated decrease in the ability to fight off new antigens that you are exposed to. So as we look at the skin, this is where you get some of the physical signs of stress. You tend to get increased signs of aging, a destabilization of the glands in the skin, Um, And in those individuals who, for example, may have diabetes and they have problems with wound healing, that can be exacerbated as a result of stress. In those who have other existing skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, and and neuro-related dermatitis, those can have increased symptoms during times of stress or flare-ups, which many people will recognize that if they can control their stress, they can also reduce flare-ups. And interestingly, there's, there's an observation. If you look back at pictures of presidents when they enter office, versus four years later when they exit the presidency, there are often significant signs of aging in that individual over just a four-year period of time. They usually have more gray hair, more skin wrinkles. It's part of that physical stress reaction. Now, in terms of the musculoskeletal system, not only can you get a decrease in muscle mass over time with chronic stress because of that Um, decrease in or or increase in the protein breakdown you also get an increase in tension and many people will notice tension headaches and migraines increase during times of stress and some of that is just related to how we quote unquote carry our stress do we hunch up our shoulders do we have a different posture and is that something that then stresses the existing muscles and so you're going to get pain and tension throughout the whole body as related to muscle tension. Now, bone density decreases as a result of stress, and it can even have effects, particularly in those who already have joint disease. It can make those symptoms more significant. The urinary system is interesting because um, there is a relationship between the kidneys and blood pressure. There's also a relationship between the kidneys and production of um, hormones that produce blood cells in the bone marrow, and so the kidneys have a partly mis- not misunderstood, but poorly understood relationship with stress and the ramifications of that because of its interaction with so many of the other systems. We do know that you can have anemia potentially as a result of chronic stress, and this becomes something that is noted particularly in those who already have chronic disease. There is an actual anemia of chronic disease that is largely related to the kidney's response to that situation. UTIs are more common. Incontinence is also more common as a result of stress in the urinary system. Then the reproductive system, stress can be a huge contributor to not only the normal female menstrual cycle, but also the fertility ability of both men and women. Because of changes in hormones, for example in men, it depresses the production of testosterone, which interferes then with the production of sperm. And you can get changes in women as well after a pregnancy. There seems to be a relationship between increased stress and postpartum depression. Now if we look at what it is that contributes to stress. I mentioned before that our perception of stress is less in modern days related to physical threats than it is Other external factors or internal factors so if we look at some of these the external factors are no longer our threat to our daily survival as they used to be it could be just environmental issues could be related to housing it could be related to an insecurity in your environment heat um, in excessively cool areas that you're not able to um, heat your home Everyday hassles, and this can be what some could consider relatively minor things, but it's about how we react to them. Family-related issues, financial problems, major life events, birth of a child, loss of a job, other people, believe it or not, relationships that just stress us out, work-related issues, and some of these we may have no control over. Then there are internal factors, things that we put into our body or do with our body. For example, excessive caffeine, not getting enough sleep, eating highly processed foods, use of recreational drugs, and smoking. And so these things are what are sort of maladaptive responses to stress, the things we don't want to do, because these are lifestyle decisions that are extremely common choices for responding to stress. Unfortunately, they're not the most positive responses to stress. And this is why our discussions in this course are hopefully going to help people potentially be making better choices with these areas. Now, it's not always just internal and external factors. We could further break some of these down into physical factors and psychological factors. For example, illness and injury, again, something out of our control. Excessive exercising or lack of exercising can be considered a stressor. Obesity, and not only the physical stressor of increased weight on our joints, but also the emotional and psychological issues that brings about with our relationships, our interactions in the environment, our interactions with others. Repetitive motion stressors. And then starvation, food insecurity, things that relate to how we respond psychologically to potential external physical factors in our lives. Now, some of these have to do with our mindset and our thinking, and this will be a focus of a future module, because some of these are things that we can learn to do differently in the future. For example, many people have all or nothing thinking, and so when a stressor occurs, they end up assuming everything is now bad or that I might as well keep going with this choice that I've made because it doesn't make a difference now, everything is bad. And that is also related to a rigidity of thinking, not realizing that you can make different choices going forward. Anxiety and fear, so strong emotions and our reaction to them, And this will be an interesting discussion in a future module. There have been studies that look at how you are approaching something either as pessimistic or optimistic, and how that influences your response to stress. Reacting to life changes. These these life events and how we respond to them and our thinking and mindset related to them are also going to affect a physiological stress response. Relationships, taking things personally, having unrealistic expectations, whether that be at work or with personal accomplishments. And what does all this lead to? So while we've talked about the effects on the body systems, what does all this look like in terms of symptoms of stress? You know some of these already. We're talking about cognitive symptoms. It might be headaches, insomnia, Just a sort of fogginess, a difficulty remembering things, an inability to concentrate. The physiological symptoms might be related to things that we saw in the fight or flight response. Increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure, you might have a lowered sex drive, you might end up with um, some gastrointestinal symptoms. The immune system changes may lead to frequent illnesses, or you may find that when you're stressed, all of a sudden you end up with a respiratory, a cold, in other words, a respiratory virus. Increased respiratory rate, disruption of glucose regulation. So that can be particularly um, harmful in somebody who's already been diagnosed with diabetes and now they're trying to really manage their blood glucose and it's being affected by stress. Behavioral symptoms that you could notice outwardly as symptoms of stress include Crying, Sort of an emotional instability where you react strongly to things that might be seen as minor. So irritability, altered eating habits, even things you're not aware of maybe while you sleep like grinding your teeth. Lashing out at people that might seem to be unreasonable for the given situation. We tend to make poorer choices when it comes to substances. We might use alcohol as something that we try to calm down with and in reality it's a poor choice for coping with stress. Difficulty communicating with others. We may become socially isolated and as far as emotional reactions we may be more impulsive or be more depressed or anxious. So all of these things end up causing wreaking havoc on our lives and sometimes in our environment, in our relationships. So what can we do about all this? We all experience stress. It's part of life and in fact these things change and adapt over the course of your life depending on what's going on with you. So once you think you've learned how to adapt or cope, you've developed some strategies, the stressors change and you have to investigate new ones. So it's important but often overlooked to periodically analyze an approach create coping strategies investigate and experiment with new coping strategies and that's called building resistance or stress resiliency. And it is something that is extremely important both for you in your personal life and for you as a practitioner to help others do so that going forward, they can have a more positive approach to stress and hopefully avoid that third phase of the general adaptation syndrome where your reserves are exhausted and you get the most physiological response to stress that leads to disease. So one thing we can help people do is to see the interconnections here between the different pillars of lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle areas influence each other. In fact, stress is one of the reasons we make poor choices in the other areas. And even when people get really good as they're working on their lifestyle areas, they may find that they're doing great on these things until something happens in life. And a stressor comes in. And if they don't have adequate coping skills, all of a sudden the rest of these go to pot. And so this becomes something that even when you're working with somebody to increase their lifestyle, positive lifestyle behaviors, a critical part of maintenance and learning to adapt and maintain those positive changes is learning to adapt to stress, because without those positive coping skills, the other lifestyle pillars will suffer. So not, not only will stress affect these, but realizing how these can be used to better manage stress, these become extremely important things to discuss going forward, and again, for your own resiliency as you go forward. Now, Sellier himself made recommendations for what he called living wisely and managing stress. He felt that And actually, you'll notice that these don't necessarily have to do with these lifestyle pillars. They have more to do with our psychological approach to them, our adaptability and coping mechanisms. So he recommended adopting an attitude of gratitude toward life. And in a future module, we'll talk about the research that actually shows how important gratitude is to changing our mindset in how we approach life and how we perceive things around us. Acting toward others in an altruistic, in other words, not self-centered way. So volunteering or just doing a small thing for someone else can improve our mood and happiness. And that can be something that in a time of stress, even though it may seem you don't have time to do something, taking a moment to do something for somebody else can really give you a boost. Retaining capacity for wonder and delight and the genuinely good and beautiful things in life. Sometimes when things get crazy and stressful, we don't take a moment to see the sunrise, to observe nature, to recognize the beauty and wonder in something, uh, the laughter of our children, the genuine care of a friend towards someone else. So you, you see these things differently as you begin to be aware of looking for them and their benefits. Keeping a healthy sense of modesty about someone's goals, about your own goals. And this, this kind of helps you not have that negative approach to failure. If you can look at a slip-up or failure as a learning opportunity... And be modest about, oh, yeah, well, I didn't do great at that, but now I know what to do to get better. That can really be helpful, too. Again, it's about your mindset. And this is a really interesting one. Finding a purpose in life. And finding a way to use your strengths to fulfill that purpose. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a future module as well. Because there have even been people in extremely stressful, what would be described as, horrific situations who somehow come out of it with a sense of well-being and purpose that allowed them to cope and get through it. For example, there was a psychologist during the Holocaust that made observations of the other prisoners in the concentration camps. Those who tended to be more likely to survive were those who had some sort of purpose. They had, even in the midst of the horrors that they were surrounded by, If they had a purpose and a reason for getting up and they felt they had a way to fulfill their purpose or seeing in the future a desire to fulfill it even after that horrific time, they were more likely to survive. And so that has been found over time to be something we may take for granted. But finding a purpose in life can allow you to move forward and cope with stressors in a more resilient way. So what are those seeds of resilience? So research shows some of the most effective strategies include, as Celier recommended, having an attitude of gratitude, as Viktor Frankl found in, in World War II in concentration camps, finding purpose, and we'll talk in a future module about Having a growth mindset. So this has to do with that idea of, you know, avoiding the all or nothing thinking and realizing that you can take a situation and learn from it and move forward in a positive way. Cultivating optimism as opposed to pessimism. And having a good support system. We'll have an entire module on social connection. And then a future module on positive psychology, which is actually going to occur encompass these areas and we'll talk more specifically about each one of those and I'll even challenge each of you to take some of these and put them into practice in your day-to-day life for at least a week to see how maybe your mindset changes. Another strategy excuse me that can be effective with managing stress is something we'll talk about in next week's module and that is using mindfulness Meditation and relaxation to manage stress. You can kind of think of it as downshifting, taking deliberate time to put things aside that you are dealing with and try to cultivate a sense of peace. So, we'll talk next time about something called mindfulness, which is where you, you take a moment and develop a non judgmental awareness of the present moment instead of thinking about the future. Instead of thinking about the past, just taking a moment to appreciate the present. And then meditation, which has a bunch of different definitions and it means a lot of different things to different people. But it is in general a practice or training of the mind to improve focus and clarity. And there are multiple types and multiple ways of going about that. And then relaxation techniques. These can be really helpful to reduce tension and counteract that stress response that occurs. Now, given that there are so many different approaches, it can be important to take a coach approach in helping foster stress resiliency. So as you help others coach, as you work with them to coach their stress resiliency, remember what that coach approach stands for. Check your assumptions at the door. Approach the situation with curiosity and openness. Don't assume that you know what might be best for dealing with that person's stressor or their individual situation. Appreciate the positive. So take that optimistic approach. As you're working with a patient or client, instead of dwelling on the negative, help them to find the positives in the situations by asking those questions that lead them to consider the positives. And then react and respond with compassion and honesty. You can individualize this approach by focusing on that client-centered conversation. Use those OR skills if necessary. Open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. You can discuss this approach with mindset and self-talk when things go downhill, helping them change their perceptions and concepts of what's going on by looking at it with a different mental attitude. You can even brainstorm ideas for how to help individuals move forward with their approach because we want it to be an individualized approach we want to let them think of what would work best for them. And if sometimes they come into it as often happens, and they're like, I have no idea how to deal with this, you can offer to brainstorm. Say, "All right, how about if we throw some things back and forth to each other? I'll come up with a couple things, you come up with a couple things, and then when we have this list, we'll see which of these you might want to experiment with. This can be a great way to put a couple of the ideas that you're at least aware of, but then as you start to suggest things that often prompts ideas from their side as well and so this can be really helpful to just put some options on the table that they can then choose from and help them feel more in control of the situation and then having them set up and commit to a process of experimentation consider what those options are for them, experimenting and see which works best, and then have them come back and talk about, get feedback on what seemed to work, what didn't, what approaches they might want to adapt or change, and how to move forward. And so we'll talk in the next several modules about some specific examples, whether that be mindfulness, meditation, relaxation techniques, whether it be developing and nurturing social relationships and positive um, interactions with others, or maybe it's taking a different approach to your mindset. And so we'll have an entire module on positive psychology approaches to adapting. And then set that goal, right, as specific as possible. In this past module, you noticed that taking that next step further to being very specific about, about what a person is going to do and making a plan is going to be critical for them to follow through. And in fact, you can even generate a prescription with frequency, intensity, time, and type in the same way you could with exercise for stress resiliency. For example, using some of those strategies that I mentioned, let's say you're helping someone find a purpose and they want to experiment with that in dealing with stress. Let's say their frequency, maybe one evening in the next week, they spend some quality time, just some time for silence, and maybe it's an hour. And they contemplate strengths and gifts, talents, their personal mission in life, and contemplate how they could carry that out. Or for someone else who wants to cultivate an attitude of gratitude, you could say, all right, how about five nights a week? You spend five to ten minutes. During that time, you perhaps write two to three things in a gratitude journal. And you're going to focus on those things for which you feel gratitude and talk about those, write them down, reflect on them a little bit, how they um, enrich your life. Let's say you want to help someone cultivate that um, sense of wonder and appreciation, finding beauty in their life, perhaps once a week. You can have someone for 10 to 20 minutes focus on nature, if that is something that brings them peace. And make careful observations in the present moment using all their senses. What do they smell, sense, feel, hear, touch in their environment so that they're in the present moment and perhaps not reflecting on the past or anxiety about the future. So again, this has to be a very individualized approach. And over the next couple weeks, we'll talk about some of the potential strategies that could be used to help people move forward. Because regardless of their progression with dealing in improving positive lifestyle behaviors, stress is one of the biggest reasons that we fall short that we revert back to previous poor lifestyle choices or that we fail moving forward in continuing to develop those. So adapting and coping is what is going to allow for maintenance and growth in positive lifestyle behaviors. So stay tuned for future options and recommendations that you can explore for yourself with stress resiliency and also helping other patients and clients move forward with their own stress resiliency.